Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 28. Acts 28, while you're turning there, let me just sort of um, make this observation. Uh, Perhaps you've noticed, this is the last chapter in Acts. We're 35 sermons in, and we're finishing um, the the book of Acts. Um, And, uh, you know, just think about for a second the things that we know because we have this book. There are all sorts of things we know, like we only really know about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at the day of Pentecost because of Acts. We only know about the growth and expansion of the church beyond the geographic and ethnic boundaries of Jerusalem through the book of Acts. Um, there are things that Paul writes in his letters that make sense because we have the book of Acts. And yet, um, there are, there's a sense in which Luke, as he finishes this book, frustrates me. Uh, Acts chapter 28, we're going to read the whole chapter, so no need to stand. Uh, after we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened to his hand. And when the people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer, though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Puteoli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, Though I had nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. 
But because, of the, because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you. None of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desired to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this, to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, and others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul and made one statement. After Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart was, has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The grass withers. The flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. There's something about this chapter that I find a little bit frustrating. I've told you before, you probably don't remember because it's really not all that important, but I do not like Agatha Christie. Okay, yes, that's based off of one book. Um, Nancy read it while we were on vacation. We were driving somewhere, and so she sat in the passenger seat and read Murder on the Orient Express. I, when it ended, got angry. You see, it turns out Hercule Poirot had access to information that the reader never got. And in my mind, what's the point of a whodunit book if the reader can't have any chance whatsoever of figuring out who done it? And so there's information there that one person has that the reader doesn't get. The end of the book of Acts feels like that to me. Did you notice at the very end you get sort of one statement from, you know, he preached morning to night, and it sounds like not once, but it's sort of an ongoing, as a, as a regular event and you get one statement recorded, and then you get two verses that say, and he lived there for a couple of years, not exactly happily ever after. And, and you're going, well, wait. What happened to Paul? Like, what happened? Like, how did it conclude? What was he imprisoned a whole two years again? Another two years in prison? Uh, it, it seems, it, if you sort of put pieces together, it seems that he actually spent time in prison, was let out for a while, and then arrested again and imprisoned again. And of course, you realize that, that Paul's prison 
in Rome is not what you and I have in mind when we think of prison because he's allowed to live in a rented house by himself with the soldier whose job it is to guard him. The same soldier, by the way, who gave him a week in one city and a few months in others and freedom to go visit believers uh, along the way as they were sailing to Rome. Luke's concluding volume two of the history of the works of Christ from zero to 65 AD. Volume one is... Luke, the Gospel, Volume 2 is the book of Acts. And when it ends, you're wondering what happened to Paul. But see, here's the thing. That's actually part of the point. We're supposed to walk away from the book of Acts wondering what happened to Paul because the book's not about Paul. Turn back to the very beginning of Acts. Let me show you. Let me remind you. It's been 30 Seven weeks since uh, we started Acts. And I don't remember things 37 minutes. I'll assume you won't remember this from 37 weeks ago. Acts 1, verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. The implication being that the book of Acts is the things Jesus continued to do and teach. Luke doesn't really write the Acts of the Apostles. He doesn't write the Acts of Paul. He writes the Acts of the risen Savior in his world. You think about all the times throughout this book, we've run across phrases like, and the word of the Lord grew. Or, and, and X number of people were added to the church. Or, and the church grew daily. Or, uh, and, and, you know, whatever. There's, there's been this pattern throughout the book of Acts of growth and expansion of the church, of God's word. And so the reality is, I don't get to treat Luke like I treat Agatha Christie. He's not withholding information that I need just out of spite, just to frustrate the reader. He's telling me exactly what I need and withholding that which just doesn't matter. And so first in this chapter, and really in a lot of ways, this chapter actually serves as um, the book of Acts in miniature. You could read Acts 28 and feel like you're reading all of Acts. It's it's a similar sort of story. First in Acts 28, and and I realize this outline is sort of intentionally written awkwardly. Um, First, there's just no stopping God's purposes. This shipwreck. Verse 1 reminds us where chapter 27 left off, that everybody's fine, that those who could swim, swam ashore. Those who couldn't swim, grabbed a piece of ship. They grabbed a plank. They grabbed something floating and and sort of swam, paddled their way towards land, towards the island. And, And we're reminded yet again that everybody made it, that no one died in 
the course of this shipwreck. Nobody went down with the ship. Nobody drowned as they were trying to swim ashore. Everyone made it. Everyone survived. And, and they landed on this island, Malta, and the people there actually welcomed them with open arms and start to build a fire because they're cold, it's wet, it's, it's October-ish. And so they start to build a fire and to, to warm them up, to make them safe. And I'm struck by the fact that Paul, you, you do remember Paul, right? Do we, do we need to remind you, Paul? You know, Paul. That's, that's what we do. That's the way we read the New Testament. We read about Paul and we go, I mean, this is Paul. Like somehow he's almost Jesus. Um, Paul's the reason they all survived. Okay, Paul didn't physically necessarily keep everybody safe and drag people ashore. But Paul's the reason they all survived. He's the one that has the promise from Christ that he's going to proclaim the gospel in Rome. He's the one that had the vision from the angel, the visit from the angel on the ship. Hey, you're all going to survive if you do this. If you all stay together, nobody leaves the ship, and, and, and God's going to keep you safe and deliver you, um, and, and everybody's going to be... He's the reason they're all okay, humanly speaking. See, I have this notion that in today's world, That guy would be laid out on the beach on a towel letting everybody else serve him. Tell me I'm not the only one. That would be my temptation. I would be the one standing there going, I'm the reason you're safe. You go get sticks for the fire. Paul, meanwhile, is gathering wood, sticks, to throw on the fire to keep everybody warm. Look, this is what the gospel does to us. It makes us servants. It changes us. Paul will, Paul's written, writes to the Philippians, consider others better than yourselves. Jesus himself said, I came not to be served, but to serve. There's a very real sense in which the effect, one effect of the gospel in our lives should make us Serve others more. And so Paul, who from a worldly perspective have, has every right to sit there and go, I'm just going to rest, I'm tired, and I'm the reason you're safe. Y'all go gather some wood and, and just, you know, I'm just going to sit here and enjoy the warmth and the heat. Of course, if... Paul hadn't been gathering sticks, he wouldn't have been attacked by a snake. And of course, their notion is, this guy's a murderer, verse 4. He's getting what he deserves. We, we do this. We when bad things happen, you're, you're carrying something out to the car and you drop it and it lands on your foot and in your head, you're thinking, what did I do to deserve this? Instant karma's gonna get you. And so the, the people on the island of Malta were convinced, well, hey, you got bit by a snake, you probably deserved it. There's a reason for it, and, 
you almost get the sense that he's sort of pop popcorn. Like, let's wait for this arm. Let's see how big this arm's going to get. Let's see, let's see how big, you know, what's the over-under on the diameter of the forearm before it's all swollen and before he dies. And... But that never comes. They're convinced he's done for. He shakes the, the viper off into the fire, lives to tell the tale. They still wait to see if, he die, if he's going to die. You know, Paul's actually immortal at this point. You know that, right? You know, and Paul's immortal on the island of Malta. Only because, don't go get any crazy ideas. Only because he has a promise from Christ. We looked at it last week. It's in chapter 27. It's in chapter 23. He has a promise from Jesus that he's going to be in Rome and he's going to be able to proclaim the gospel there. That means he can't die in Malta because the word of God can't fail. And so Paul's actually immortal. He's actually invincible at this point because if he died here, he would have no audience in Rome and God's already promised him to have that audience. And so no snake on Malta was going to kill him. Of course, you can, you can see the instability of the unbelieving mind. Well, if he didn't die, it must be because he's a god. And therefore, let's load them down with stuff to take with them, almost like an offering to the gods. It just so happened that... Um, Publius... Publius, the sort of the chief man of the island, lives nearby. His father's sick. I love it when the Bible uses our perspective rather than God's. Did you see that in verse 8? It happened. You know, it, it just so happened that Publius was there. And it just so happened that his father was sick. And it just so happened that... that that's the language we use. That's the language of chance. That's the way we talk. And I, you really got to love it when the Bible says, you know what, I'm going to write as though you are talking and not as though God is talking because we know that the Bible says there is no chance. We know that the Bible teaches that God is in control of absolutely everything. Just think about all the details that had to happen just so in order for Paul to be here at this moment to heal Publius' father and whoever else was on the island that was sick that they brought to him. I mean, imagine if Felix, was it Felix? Felix was the first one, right? Imagine if Felix had only kept Paul for one year instead of two. Imagine if Festus hadn't waited for Agrippa to come. Imagine if Festus hadn't struggled to write a report to Rome to tell Caesar this is what Paul's done and why he needs to be punished. Imagine if the, they, they had listened to Paul and not left the island when Paul said, guys, it's after the Day of Atonement. We can't sail now. You don't sail west in the Mediterranean in the wintertime. 
Imagine if they'd listened to Paul. Imagine if the ship had sunk a day or two before. Imagine if a ship survived another day. All of those details had to be orchestrated to put Paul on the island of Malta at this particular moment. We read about shipwrecks, or worse, we have our own version of shipwrecks. And we wonder where God is. And this passage says he was right there in it the whole time. That shipwreck, that struggle, that conflict, that difficulty in life doesn't mean God has left you. It might mean this is God's tool, this is God's instrument for bringing about his purposes in your life and in other people around you. You just can't stop God's purposes. In fact, it ended up that the people of Malta just loaded down the ship and, and gave them whatever they needed. They put it on board to sail the rest of the way to Rome. You can't stop God's purposes. The second thing, though, is you can't beat God's people. Paul, Luke, Aristarchus, Julius. Julius is the name of the... You've forgotten this already. I had forgotten it too. I had to go back and look and make sure. Julius is the name of the Roman soldier whose job it is to get Paul from Jerusalem, from Caesarea, to Rome. He's the one who's sort of personally responsible for Paul and his safety and delivery and his whereabouts. They arrive in this place called Puteoli. Uh, it's not too far from Rome. It's, it's in the Bay of Naples. They find believers there. And verse 14, they're invited to stay with them for seven days. Paul's never been here before. Now, Paul wrote the, the letter to the church in Rome several years ago. And he sent it to Rome. And, and at the end of that letter, you can read, I want to be with you. I long to come visit you. I would love to come meet you. Paul's never been here before. And he, he, they land in Puteoli and they find believers, people that, that didn't hear the gospel from Paul, these aren't people who were converted under Paul's preaching ministry. And they said, you should come stay with us for a week. Come, come, come hang out. Come spend a week with us. There's a picture there of the body of Christ. You and I have brothers and sisters that we can't even talk to because we don't know the language. We have brothers and sisters, we have family members all around the globe, in every single time zone around the globe. People who speak languages, we don't have a clue how to figure out. But they're family. And, and when believers 
get together, when believers meet together, when they finally end up in the same place, there is a joy there and a relationship and a camaraderie there that only comes from the gospel. But imagine being Julius, this Roman soldier. You're, you're, you're this close to Rome. I mean, you can, you, can, you can see it. You can taste it. You can, Rome, it's right there. Hey, um, Julius, they want us to stick around for a week. What do you think? I mean, it's taken months to get here. We've been through shipwrecks. I've been stuck with you. I gave you freedom to go visit believers in one town. I gave you freedom back here in Malta. We spent several months there. Look, it's time to get to... I mean, you almost get the sense that Julius goes, who are these people? Who is this guy that I'm traveling with that these people would say, hey, Paul, come stay with us. Come hang out with us. We aren't told this. So this is me making stuff up. So don't, don't run out of here saying, well, this must have happened because Jeff said it. This, I'm making it up. I find it interesting that we have Julius's name. You almost wonder if watching Paul during this trip, if watching Paul interact with his brothers and sisters in Christ that he's never met, and hearing Paul preach as he does, you wonder if Julius doesn't get converted somewhere along the way. I mean, we sing they'll know we are Christians by our love. Part of the point is that the way believers love each other is an apologetic to the watching world that Christ really has come. He really has sent His Son to save us from sin and to unite us in the family of God. Here in Puteoli, there's no... The book of Acts is just so different. I mean... It changes from one town to the next, from one city to the next, from one trip to the next. There's no record of Paul preaching. I mean, he's there for seven days. We know Paul's pattern. He preached. But we don't have anything written. We don't have anything recorded. There's no evidence of him preaching from morning until past midnight and some boy falling out of a window and dying and Paul having to bring him back to life and then going back upstairs to eat and start preaching again. There's no record of a, of a, a conflict. There's no record of, of an uprising. There's no record of anything except that Paul was there and invited to stay for a week. Except, notice verse 15. As they're approaching Rome, people coming from all sorts of places to come and see Paul. And notice that when these people came from as far as for the Forum of Appius, and three taverns, Paul thanked God and took courage. Sinclair Ferguson makes an observation about that verse. He said, we focus on, and rightly so, we um, uh, so often think about 
the importance of the Apostle Paul on the Christian church. But do we ever stop to think about the importance of the Christian church for the Apostle Paul? We don't because we think, well, it's Paul. He doesn't need anything else. He's almost Jesus. But Paul sees these brothers and sisters coming to visit him, coming to see them, and on seeing them, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. We should be encouraged by and with the body of Christ. We know those moments when the phone call, the text message, the email, the the whatever, the short little visit, that fellowship that encourages us because so frequently we're tired, we're weak, we're discouraged, we're hurting, we're alone. Paul was not self-sufficient. Paul was not complete in and of himself. He needed the church and here we get evidence of that. There's just no beating God's people. And then lastly, There's just no hindering God's word. Paul arrives in Rome and he's welcomed, it appears, by some believers who've come from the form of Appius and and three taverns. Of course, you get, uh, we came to Rome and then you get, we came to Rome, we get it sort of written twice and it could be sort of outskirts, outer Rome and then inner, sort of the main part of Rome. Um, when, when Paul finally gets an audience with the leaders of the Jews, it sounds like he had to call the meeting. Like there's no, there are no Roman officials waiting for him. There's no policemen. There's no FBI. There's no CIA. There's no DEA. I mean, there's nobody. There's nobody waiting for Paul to say, hey, we're glad you're finally here and under arrest and we're going to take you with us and we're going to take you down to the jail. He just shows up in Rome. And he has to call the meeting with the Jews. And in fact, the only instance of his preaching we have recorded in Rome, in Acts, is to these Jewish people. It's not even to Caesar. It's not even to Roman officials. But we know Paul's pattern. If Paul has an audience, Paul preaches Jesus. He doesn't plead innocence. He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't kick and scream and cry. He tells people about Jesus. And you notice in verse 23, he reasons, he tries to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses, that's the the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and the prophets. In other words, he's talking about Jesus from the Bible. But he doesn't have the whole Bible we have. He doesn't have Acts. He's still living Acts. It's not written yet. He doesn't have the letters that he will write from Rome in prison. He doesn't have some of John's letters. He doesn't have Revelation. He has the Old Testament. And we're reminded yet again, the Old Testament is about Christ. The Old Testament is about Jesus. This was Paul's message from his cell, from his rented home, stuck there like he was for 
a couple of years, released and, and brought back, it appears he proclaims the kingdom of God and he teaches about the Lord Jesus Christ. And we don't have the concluding details of Paul's life in this book. Because the book isn't about Paul. It's about the growth and expansion of the gospel. It's about the church growing. It's about the word growing. It's about God's kingdom growing on the earth. And and you remember the outline of the book all the way back in verse 8 of chapter 1. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. Guess where Paul is right here at the end of the book? The ends of the earth. Okay, there's more earth. He knows about Spain and, and perhaps probably would have gone to Spain after this. Who knows how far he would have gone. He, he was always about pushing the gospel out, growing the church as much as he could. But he's in the heart of the known world at the end of this book. The gospel has reached the epicenter of the known world. And notice how it ends. It doesn't end talking about Paul. It doesn't end reminding us or informing us what happened to the apostle. It ends with, the word of the Lord Jesus Christ being taught and proclaimed with all boldness and without hindrance. Paul might be in chains, but God's word is not. Be encouraged by that truth. Be encouraged by that reality. You and I are called to participate in continuing the work of the book of Acts. There's just no hindering God's Word. Let me make two quick applications. The first is this. Why is Paul so hung up on preaching Jesus? And the reason is, the eternal state of the people around him mattered to him far more than his own temporary, temporal, earthly condition. He would preach Jesus because that mattered more than his own release from prison. Because he knew and believed that all who called on the name of Christ would be saved. And that's the same message that we proclaim today. And second, the book of Acts isn't over. Uh, Luke leaves the end of the book open because it isn't over even still today. It sort of reminds me of the way Bilbo wrote as far as he could write and then stopped and said, Frodo, the rest is yours. And then Frodo wrote as far as he could write and then stopped and said, Sam, the rest is yours. You're going to complete this. There's a sense in which Luke stops because the Spirit tells him to stop and he says, The rest is yours. That's why today there's a church planning movement out there called Acts 29. You're like, well, I don't see an Acts 29. That's because we're living it. Growing and expanding the church today. You and I are part of the outline of Acts 1.8. Taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. 
The task is yet unfinished. And you and I are called to participate in completing it. So let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the power of the gospel to to save those who are lost. Would you use us to grow and expand your kingdom yet further? Would you use us to participate in Acts 1-8, taking the gospel even to the ends of the earth? And we pray that your name would be exalted in us and through us and because of us, all to the honor and glory of Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.